Many people think of deliverance as a complicated means of ending the enemy's influence in their lives. Yet, that's not really biblical deliverance at all. Let's talk about what really works to get free and stay free. This is the Shut Up Devil Show, and I am Kyle Winkler, author of the book Shut Up Devil, created the Shut Up Devil app. I'm all about shutting down the lies and the struggles that keep you from thriving in God's design for your life. I'm here to do it every single week with a live online audience, and I'd love for you to join us live sometime. We're here at Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central at kylewinkler.org slash live. And by the way, don't forget, wherever you're watching or listening, tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. Most of you have probably heard the term deliverance, right? Many of you probably think about it like I did. For years, I thought deliverance was the instant end to some vice, the result of a devil being kicked out of your life. And as I share so much lately in the first decade of my faith, I nearly knocked down heaven's door, begging God to bring an instant end to fears and feelings and behaviors and problems, and ultimately to make me perfect. But I know this might surprise some of you, but perfect never happened. No altar call, no specific prayer regimen prescribed in the most popular book made all my problems go away. Then about 10 years into my faith, as I still endured many of the same things, I begged God to know why it hadn't changed. I begged him to know what more do I have to do, God? That question to God was really the beginning of me understanding what deliverance is and what it isn't. It was the start of understanding how to get free and stay free in a way that really worked for me. That's what will work for you too. Whether that's free from emotional things like fear, insecurity, or shame, or free from more behavioral things like addictions and secret sins. In Scripture, there are different kinds of deliverances that God provides. Some are instant, and others aren't. And this is where the confusion happens for a lot of people. So, Let's look at this. In the Old Testament, there are at least several Hebrew words that all translate as deliverance, salvation, or rescue. Several words that all basically come from the same word. They're used interchangeably for both physical and spiritual kinds of deliverance. I want to show you some examples here. Probably the most popular deliverance known to God's people in the Old Testament was their deliverance from Egypt. We see this in Exodus 3, verse 8. God says, So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. The word rescue there is the same word that other times is translated as deliverance. Same Hebrew word for deliverance. And this time it was translated as rescue. So, there's this verse and plenty others like it 
that describe deliverance as God rescuing people from a location that's harmful to them and bringing them into a location that's good for them. So there you see, right? Deliverance here is a change of location. But the words for deliverance are also used many times in the Old Testament to reflect a spiritual rescue or saving. We hear this a lot in the Psalms, especially in David's prayers to God. Psalm 39, verse 8, he prays, Rescue me, deliver me from my rebellion. And this Psalm and the ones around it are really likely written by David as he's reflecting upon his affair with Bathsheba. So he's asking the Lord to deliver him from the consequence of his sin. Psalm 51, verse 14, David says, Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. That word saves, then again, is another word for deliverance. And this is the New Living Translation. That's what I'm using here. But the King James uses a word I've never heard, but it's interesting. It has David saying, deliver me from blood guiltiness. So this is a prayer of deliverance from the guilt of sin. I could read off scripture after scripture after scripture. And I'd suggest that you do a word study for deliverance and go through a lot of these verses and see the different kind of nuances that scripture uses for it. But just from those few Old Testament scriptures, you can see that there are various kinds of deliverances. Some are physical, some are spiritual, but they all have one thing in common, and it ought to be obvious. It's always God that is the deliverer and humans that are the delivered. And I make that point because it's never humans who deliver themselves. It's always God that initiates and provides the power to do it and keep it. And so this is the point I really want you to see for now. Whether it's physically or spiritually, no human can provide their own deliverance through their own self-help methods. We've got all these self-help books and resources, and it's a huge industry these days, and I get it. I'm not saying they don't have their place, but none of them, no human method can really lastingly deliver us. You know, can a human in physical slavery do anything to get out of slavery? Not really. Even if they escaped the location, they'd always be in fear of being caught, and that in of itself is a slavery. To be really free, it takes the decision, takes the action of somebody else. It's the same with the spiritual rescuing. Can we provide our own forgiveness from something we did to someone else? No, it takes the decision of somebody else to do it. So we're going to come back to this idea later when we talk about how to practically experience deliverance for yourself. But on to the New Testament, because here's where things get exciting. In the New Testament, the language changes from Hebrew to Greek. You know that. But the kinds of deliverances that God provides really stays the same. There's location deliverance and there's spiritual, just like there was in the Old Testament. The difference, though, is that the location changes and how it happens does too. 
So while it's good to know all of this in the Old Testament, it's what the New Testament says regarding deliverance. That's what really matters to us today. So we'll start with the location. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. It describes it here, the location. For he has rescued us, delivered us, from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. So this verse here about being rescued from darkness calls to mind Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 9. So we're going to flip-flop back and forth here a little bit between Isaiah and Colossians. So you can see the parallels here because Paul, when he's writing to the Colossians, is really calling to mind this prophecy from Isaiah of a location deliverance. All right, so you're going to see what he means here. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 2, Isaiah says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. And then Isaiah moves on to talk about how those people in darkness will be rescued from their slavery. In verse 4, he says, For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. He's talking about the Messiah as the one who would bring the people out of their place of darkness and slavery and into light. So when we go back to the New Testament and we look at Colossians 1.13, Paul tells us this is exactly what Jesus did. He fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy of deliverance from darkness. Again, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Then he tells us how he did it, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Oh, there's so much, so much to this verse. Jesus, obviously, he's the Messiah, he's the deliverer that Isaiah was talking about, and Paul says this is him. He did it. He's the answer also to David's cries. When David said, God, rescue me from the consequences of my sin, forgive me of my guilt. Jesus is the one that did it. He forgave our sins. He's the answer to that yoke of slavery and burden that Isaiah talked about. In forgiving our sins, he purchased our freedom, it says there. And in doing both, he changed our location from darkness to light. Again, just as Isaiah prophesied he would. And here's the thing that's a major difference between the deliverance of the Old Testament and the deliverance of the New Testament. David cried out, God, please rescue, please save, please forgive. Isaiah prophesied of something yet to come, but we shouldn't talk like that anymore because now we are living some 2,000 years on the other side of the deliverer who did come. And as believers, we are living in the grace of his forgiveness not as something we beg God for, but as a done deal that we accept is done. All because of Jesus. Well, this brings us to perhaps the most popular word for deliverance in the New Testament, which is the Greek word sozo. And that's usually translated as saved or salvation. 
So when people like the Apostle Paul use this word, they're most frequently referring to how Jesus' work, what he did on the cross, saved people from the requirements of the law. In other words, Jesus' sacrifice rescued us from the punishment of sin. It rescued us from the guilt of breaking the law. It rescued us from the separation from God that the law established. So, in Matthew's version of the Christmas story, I know we're months away from Christmas here, but we'll bring some Christmas spirit into this. In Matthew's version of the Christmas story, the angel told Joseph that the child within Mary is conceived by the Holy Spirit and she will have a son. And the angel says, you're to name him Jesus and he will save, deliver, same word there, you will save his people from their sins. This is what John the Baptist announced, that Jesus had come to take away the sin of the world. This is what Paul said that he did on the cross in 2 Corinthians 5.19. He said that because of the cross, God no longer counts our sins against us. So that's ultimate deliverance, all done because Jesus came and because he died. And the way we receive that deliverance is consistently described all throughout the New Testament in a simpler way than some people make it out to be. Romans 10.9 says that if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. You will be delivered. Verse 10 says, for it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. So you see, in all of those verses, Paul essentially says that deliverance happens when the gospel message is believed, when it is personally accepted. Paul said, believe in your heart. He's not talking about the blood-pumping organ in the center of your chest. Heart is a word that means everything about you. It includes your thoughts, yes, but it's more than that. The biblical heart is your identity. He's talking about complete dependency on Jesus. Like everything about you is dependent on Jesus. That's what belief in your heart means. People ask me frequently, how do I know that I'm saved? Well, you know if you believe that Jesus is God's son, and if you believe that he did everything necessary to forgive your sins and make you right with God. That's everything about you being dependent upon Jesus. You are literally putting your life, your eternity, your standing with God on the line with Jesus. That's dependency on him. Now, people have argued with me about this, specifically when it comes to salvation. Like I said, I maintain that salvation happens through belief in the gospel, and I'm on solid ground there. There are scripture after scripture after scripture that says, by belief, you are made right. By belief, you are saved. By belief, over and over and over again. One person said, yeah, but Paul was speaking to people who were being persecuted, who would face death if they declared their faith. So their point is, is that belief meant more back then. 
It was harder to do back then. They think, since it's easy for us to believe today, at least here in America, there has to be more that we have to do to be saved. That was their point. And sure, most of us today don't face persecution because of our belief and declaration of Jesus as our Lord. Not in any real way like they did back then. Okay. Here in America, we're not getting beheaded. Yes, maybe they're taking Bible verses or something off coffee cups or whatever, but that's not persecution in the sense that they had back then. So it is kind of easier for us to believe, I guess. But I don't think God's goal was for the church to always remain in persecution. I mean, Jesus did commission the disciples to tell the world in hopes that as many people as possible would believe. So naturally, the more people who believe, the less persecution there will be. So that doesn't mean that these days we must suddenly do more to be saved or prove that we're saved. No. Besides, that wouldn't be dependency on Jesus anyway. More to do puts your dependency on your actions. It makes behavior your savior. That's not the gospel. Anything, that was before the gospel. That was the law. But that's not the good news. It's not what Jesus came to provide. Behavior as your savior is a sure route to more bondage, not deliverance. Belief in the message of the cross still does the work of deliverance as much today as it did back then. Simple as that. So when it comes to your location and your spiritual state, as a believer, you are rescued, you are saved, you are delivered. You don't have to beg God like David did. You receive it because of what Jesus did instantly upon your belief. But I know that most of you tuned in because of persistent issues or feelings that you face as a believer. Believers aren't immune to any of that stuff. Maybe there are vices that you keep coming back to, things that keep plaguing you, and you're seeking deliverance from those things. Well, I took the time to lay the foundation of deliverance because it's going to help you know how to apply it to your life as a believer. And it's really better and easier than you think. Before we get into the practicals, let me quickly say two things that deliverance isn't. And this might be a surprise to some of you, but it's all based upon what we just learned here. Deliverance isn't exorcism. I know the two often get confused. I thought for years that exorcism was deliverance and deliverance was exorcism. That was the same kind of thing. But exorcism is the process where something evil is driving out using the authority of Jesus' name. A couple points on that here. First, if you are a believer, the enemy can't be in you. Colossians 3.3 says that you, the real you, which is your spirit, is hidden in Christ. So the devil can't even find where to enter the real you. Hidden in Christ. So he, he can't. He can't affect you in any way that affects your eternal destiny, at least. But secondly, the Bible clearly says that the enemy is already defeated. What Jesus did on the cross, what we just talked about a few minutes ago, the finished work that forgave you and freed you, but the Bible says also defeated the devil. 
Colossians 2, 14 through 15 says Jesus canceled the record of our wrongs, and he did it by nailing it to the cross. And it goes on to say, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. And I love how it goes on. It says that he publicly shamed them by his victory over them on the cross. And what Paul is describing there is something called a triumphant procession which is really another message, and I've taught on it before, but the gist of it is, is when enemy armies were defeated back in those days, they would take the leader and they would parade him through the streets to show the people that he's not a threat anymore. So this is what Paul is describing of the devil, that because of the cross, the enemy is being paraded by God naked through the streets of embarrassment to show that he's, he's not looming anymore. He's not a threat, an ultimate threat to you anymore. So whatever you're experiencing as a believer does not mean you're defeated. It doesn't mean anything about you. Now, that doesn't mean the enemy isn't influential still. I mean, he, obviously he does still exist. Like I said, he can't get in you, so what's he do? He shouts. Because he can't affect your spirit, nor your eternal destiny. He tries to mess with your flesh. He tries to mess with your mind. He does it through his voice. The only so-called power that the enemy has in a Christian's life is what I call the power of persuasion. All he can do is lie. And I know I've been saying that for a while now. It is the premise of my book, Shut Up Devil. But I'm going to keep saying it. Because that truth right there. It'll set you free from so much. It did for me. When I realized that all my problems were not because of a devil in me or on me, well, that rid me of a whole lot of shame from doing a whole lot of rituals and then feeling bad when it all didn't work or didn't last. All the enemy can really do is convince you that what Jesus did isn't enough. That's what he tries to do. That who you are isn't enough. That what you've done can't be or isn't forgiven. That what you experience makes you a horrible or deficient or incomplete person. Devil in Greek, as I so often say, and it's the premise of the first chapter in Shut Up Devil, is diabolos, which means slanderer. He's trying to destroy your reputation, which is in Christ. He wants you to believe bad things from lies. Lies about your situations, lies about your past, lies about your present, lies about your future. And it's those bad beliefs that come from those lies that are what program our minds to think accordingly, which influences us to speak accordingly and act and react accordingly. The root of every bad behavior or bad habit is a bad belief. I'm telling you, when you get down to the root, the symptom is the behavior. The symptom is the emotion. The symptom is the feeling. The root is a bad belief that stems from a lie. So those behaviors that you're dealing with that you don't want to do, but you still do them maybe, they don't mean you aren't saved. Those habits don't mean you aren't forgiven. I know that there are people out there that'll say that kind of stuff. Well, a real Christian wouldn't be doing thus and so. I'll put Christian in quotes. Yeah, certainly the power of God in us at the moment of our salvation 
breaks things in our lives. I've known people who were instantly healed of stuff. One guy I know was filled with the Holy Spirit on the toilet and instantly had his eyesight healed and stopped his craving for cigarettes, right? In that moment. But they weren't perfected in other areas of their flesh or in every area of their flesh. I think most of us can understand that because who of us can claim that we don't deal with something? Probably nobody listening to this message because you're listening for a reason. When somebody believes in Jesus, when they say yes to Jesus, they are delivered from darkness and placed into the kingdom of light right away. Made right, as Paul said. They are delivered from the spiritual consequence of sin. They are delivered from the burden of the law. There are many deliverances that happen in just that single moment when we hear and accept the gospel message. But as awesome as all of that is, and it is what matters most, your flesh isn't completely perfected in that moment, right? We all can get honest and say that in the moment of our salvation, not everything went away, not everything changed in our lives in a physical sense. There may still be some deliverance to be had in the flesh. And you know what? There might be deliverance to be had in the flesh for the rest of your life. But it doesn't mean anything about your relationship with God. It doesn't mean that you're not good with God. It doesn't mean that you're not loved by God. It has nothing to do with your salvation. Deliverance of things in the flesh, of emotions and attitudes and feelings and that kind of stuff. Yes, God is fixing our attitudes and our actions, and he, yes, works with us in those kinds of ways. Again, not for salvation purposes, but so that you experience the joy and the fullness of your salvation here on earth. God cares about that. He's not apathetic to all that. So I know I'm being repetitive here, but I have to make sure we all understand this. Any deliverance that we talk about regarding Christians is not about your position changing before God. With your faith in Jesus, you were transferred from darkness and into light. You were set and settled in Christ. A Christian's so-called deliverance is solely about deprogramming our minds from the lies that we picked up over the years and renewing our minds with God's truths. And that's a process that includes accepting the gospel message to all areas of our life, believing with our hearts. That's the process of what Paul spoke of in Romans 12 to the renewing of the mind that God changes you into a new person by changing the way you think. But the point there is God changes you. Here again, it's not self-deliverance. Yeah, we have a part. We renew our minds. That's an active part there. The verb there is an active verb. It is something that we have a part in, but it's not to earn anything. So, for example, if you want to be delivered from anger, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the roots of anger and frustration. What's the root lie? I'll tell you, there have been moments in my life when I have found myself going from zero to 100 in frustration if something doesn't go right. And every time it happens, I realize it's the result of a lie, a bad belief. I get impatient when I believe that if things don't happen in the right timing, then I'm going to miss out. 
tell what's a, a good belief, a truth that I could renew my mind to. Psalm 37, 23 is a great one to help with that. The steps of the godly are ordered by the Lord. My time is in God's hands. I'm not going to miss out. He orders my steps and he corrects my missteps. Don't have to worry. I just got to remember that. I grow easily frustrated when I fear that delays and disappointments will cost me. Ultimately, that's a scarcity mindset. Well, renewing my mind to Philippians 4.19 helps with that. God will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. He's not running out, so I'm not going to run out. I've realized that as I attack these root lies with ultimate truth, over time, I just naturally begin to be delivered from things like anger and stress and frustration. Again, perfection isn't the goal. But because God's power is put into work in my life, it does the work of changing me in the natural to who God says that I already am in the spirit. I said in last week's message, it sinks our flesh with our spirit. If there's something you keep coming back to, a vice, an addiction, whatever, you might just say, okay, Holy Spirit, I don't want to do this anymore. What are the lies I've picked up that are at the roots of this thing? And then just wait. I mean, go on about your life and just wait until he reveals these things to you one at a time. You don't have to stress out about it because he rarely brings it to you all at once because he's not in a hurry because your eternal destiny isn't at stake, first of all. But second of all, he's the one who knit you together in your mother womb. He's the one who knows the best times to bring this stuff and the best ways to bring this stuff out. So he'll do it when it's best for you. So you go and live your life and just suddenly you'll realize, wow, that was a lie that I was believing and you'll know what truth to bring to it. It's kind of like peeling an onion layer by layer by layer. But when you recognize a lie, don't shame yourself. Oh, how horrible. I can't believe that I ever believed that. No. When you recognize a lie, like I said, simply apply the truth of God's word regarding it. Apply the message of the cross. That's really what we're talking about here. Apply the gospel about who you are and what you have in Christ. And as you do, the power of the deliverer will work in you to change you from the inside out. That means the burden of change is off of you and on God right where he always wanted it. Practically speaking, this is why I'm a strong believer in thinking and speaking God's word. Speaking God's word gets the truth out of you and in you. It like really helps you to identify with it because you say it and you hear it and you process it and it really helps your mind stick with it and all those pathways that get created in the brain and everything. It actually helps those pathways get entrenched more so that in time you begin to see according to the truths and hear according to the truths and think according to the truths and the rest of your life begins to just align to those truths and you act and react accordingly. That's a process of deliverance for emotions, feelings, and behaviors. But hear me, and it's important for you to understand this. Again, the Bible is clear that the real you is your spirit. 
and your spirit was instantly perfected. You were made right, made whole, made holy upon your belief. Hidden in Christ at the moment of your salvation. I showed you in the last message, Ephesians 2.6 says that your spirit is already seated with Christ. Your spirit is who you are for eternity, not your flesh. And not the actions, attitudes, impulses, feelings, fears, addictions, struggles that your flesh produces. You're not going to take any of that to heaven with you. All of that dies and decays in the ground. God gives you a new glorious body in heaven to house your already perfected spirit. Are you with me here? Even if you aren't delivered of every vice of the flesh, know that it means nothing about the real you. It doesn't affect your eternity or status with God. Your belief in Jesus provided your ultimate deliverance. So you may rest assured God is good and you are good with God. And that's the gospel. Okay, you know that with every message, I have to tell you how I can help you beyond it. And on the topic of deliverance, one of the best ways that I can help you is through my scripture reflection journal, Think on These Things, 30 Days of Power Thoughts to Boost Your Confidence and Courage. This journal begins with a chapter on mind renewal, where I go into the science of it, and I share some practical tips that just really help apply it in your life little more quickly, maybe. But ultimately, I lead you through 30 days of grace-based scriptures that I handpicked for overcoming lies regarding your worth and significance, regarding your identity and purpose, so much more. And then I offer reflection prompts, journaling prompts for each scripture. There are four or five journaling prompts in there with space to write out what the scripture means about you and what it means about your situation, what it means about God, and even helps you rephrase it in a way that just helps you identify with the truth of it, put on the truth of it as the Apostle Paul said. So these journals are available on my website. We'll ship them right out to you if you order it now at kylewinkler.org journal. They're great for your entire family to go through. That's why we offer a discount if you order five or more. Again, all the details are there at kylewinkler.org slash journal. Okay, that does it for the Shut Up Devil Show. Remember, God is good and he is for you and we're here for you too. Every week on my website at kylewinkler.org, on our podcast, and wherever you get your social media. And don't forget, wherever you're watching or listening, to tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. I'll see you next time.